Welcome to Revolution Solution, providing you with solutions for your revolution to be a free person in an unfree world. Join us in our pursuit of sovereignty through permaculture, technology, and community. Welcome back, guys, to Revolution Solution. This is Cody with Gore Brewing. And Jared, the primary guy. And we are here to follow up on last week's episode about uh, mead brewing. Um, today, I'm going to talk a little bit, bit about what, uh, a little bit more about like flavors and that sort of thing, and what is actually coming to Childerberger with me this year. Uh, and then to follow that, we're going to do a book review uh, because Jared just finished Carrots Love Tomatoes. Oh, yeah. Sweet. Okay, so um, I know we talked a lot about like the, the costs last time and just a little bit about like what you would need, what a basic setup would look like. Um, so I'm going to leave that one open to you guys if you want to DM me. I uh, Actually, I've deactivated my Twitter account. I just didn't want to be there anymore. Uh, but you can DM me on Discord. Uh, where else? Oh, and you can send an email to... Uh, is it revsalpod at protonmail.com? Yes. Okay. That's the one. Cool. Yeah, so if you send an email there, um, we'll try to check it. Uh you know, like once a week or something, just to make sure that that you get seen. Um, if you want help, hit us up, and I will uh, try to get in contact with you one way or another. Um, yeah, the podcast is also on Twitter. Yeah, the podcast is on Twitter. I haven't logged that into that for a while. Um, I just kind of like post the episodes, and sometimes I forget to, <laughs> to be totally honest. Um, no worries. But... Yeah, if you, if you wanted to check it, you could. I'm I'm gonna make a concerted effort not to get on Twitter. Um, it's probably a good call from now on because I just yeah. Anyway, um, so let's see. Let me go see if I can find the. Um, there's an image that I want to look at and and read from because there you can look this up just like image search anything like types of mead and you will be able to see this let me go find it there we go so <clears throat> there is this really cool infographic called um, Mead Varieties. And it starts off, I mean, so you have your traditional meads, which we talked about a little bit, where it's just honey, water, and yeast. Um, these also get called show meads. Um, kind of, I, I guess, 
you know, if you're going to showcase like your honey um, and you're, you're trying to make just a, a really good normal style mead, they, they do uh, contests for that just like they do with like wine tastings and stuff they do it with, or like cooking contests, same thing. Um, you also have what's called a great mead or a sack um, where it's actually going to have more honey in it. Um, so those are usually step fed until the yeast basically just cannot go anymore. And it ends up incredibly sweet and it ends up incredibly alcoholic. And that, you know, some of these can be like up to 22% alcohol, which is probably like the absolute max that you could get out of yeast before needing to distill something. And then on the other side of that spectrum is the hydromel or what they also call a short mead, which is, it's probably called a short mead because it takes less time to ferment usually and it less, less time to age uh, because it's less honey. So um, a hydromel is uh, mostly, I would call anything below like 8% a hydromel. Um, people can be very picky about it, but like if you go in online and you see a, like a canned mead that's 5% and carbonated, that's going to be a hydromel by definition. Um, but you can get even more complex than that. So like, you know, those three terms, basically you get traditional sack and hydromel and all of those basically just refer to how much honey to water there is. Um, and then you start getting into flavors. So um, a methaglin, M-E-T-H-E-G-L-I-N, is any spice combination. So cardamom pods, rosemary, thyme, cinnamon, vanilla, uh, cloves. Um, those are all very popular. <clears throat> um, let me see. A melomel is another one, like a big one that you're going to see um, brewed most often is uh brewed with fruit and uh you know, this picture shows like peaches pomegranates blueberries blackberries and strawberries those are really common a rotamel is roses or rose hips coffamel bet you can guess what that is coffee yep um and that's actually one recipe that i've done that i need to do again was a coffee mill that that I um, brewed with coffee from a guy. Um, you remember the Liberty Hippie? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so he he has a website called uh, Run Your Mouth Coffee, and he, one of the coffees there is bourbon barrel aged. So I took those. Okay. Yeah, I took those, and I just put them in whole, and it kind of gave the, co the, the mead like a coffee bourbon-esque thing going on. It was very like, like if you got like, ice cream and it had just a little bit of coffee in it and it had like some caramel drizzle that was basically what it tasted like oh yeah temptation mm-hmm so to get more specific with the melomels like uh, i mentioned you know like strawberries blackberries blueberries there's not really a whole lot of names for those but there are names for specific ones so like a sizer is specifically brewed with apples um and i think that that comes from cider which is apples that are fermented sizer is apples and honey um a piment is uh brewed with grapes so that's going to be think of it half wine half mead um and the difference so if you find a honey wine that is wine 
with honey added to it, that's a honey wine. So it's more wine than honey. If it's a pie mint, there's, it's more honey than it is grapes. So it's just sort of like a, whether or not it crosses that 50, 50 line, uh, which one it is. Okay. Okay. And Dimmer switch. It, yep. Plus I think if it's a honey wine, it's a wine that's been sweetened with honey. So if the, this is another like very, you know, like a, a particularity about it where if it's not fermented, like for example, it, a sizer is apples and honey that is both fermented. If I made a mead and finished it and then I added apples to it for flavor, that would be a apple mead, not a sizer. See what I'm saying? Mm, okay. So it's whether yeah. or not you actually Making fermented some distinctions. the fruit. Yeah. Yeah. Um, a morat is brewed, brewed with mulberries. Um, a black mead is brewed with black currants. Um, mm. And then the classic Vikings blood is brewed with cherries. Um, something to note here is that you are going to see a very popular mead um, from a company called Donksmjod. Um, D-A-N-S-K-M-J-O-D. Um, and they're like a, you know, I don't know if they're actually from Scandinavia or if they just use that name so it sounds like they are. <laughs> um, but they have a Vikings blood, which is B-L-O-D with the umlaut over the O, the two dots. Um, that is not a Vikings blood because blood in like Scandinavian ancient language over there actually means like dram or drink. So you can think of it as oh, like, okay. this is, this is Viking drink. Not, it's not Vikings blood, which is cherries. It's Viking drink. And that particular mead is actually a hot, uh, hibiscus meat. So it would be a methaglin with hibiscus in it. Hmm. Yeah. Interesting. Um, man, a lot of people like it. Some people don't, I don't know. Uh, but if you see Vikings blood, and it actually says blood, you know, double check the back and see if it's actually cherries. If it's not, it might be, you know, it might be just some other sort of red mead. So that's kind of a, a hard one. Um, let's see. This a last bit of one. Trickery. Yep. This last one on the infographic is a uh, hippocras and it says it's brewed with wine, brandy and cinnamon. So that's. That's basically like something that's been blended, I would think. Like, I'm not sure that anybody actually brews it with the wine and brandy. I would assume that you have wine and brandy already and you're just adding mead to it, like a, a cinnamon mead to it. Okay. Um, but that, that sounds pretty great. So one popular thing, um, I mentioned Chaucer's last time. If you want to go try mead and, and try Chaucer's, make sure it comes with the mulling spices wrapped It'll have a little bungee cord wrapped around the um, stem or the neck of the bottle. Um, and you can mull it by putting, you know, pouring some, maybe half the bottle or the whole bottle into a pan and putting that little tea bag with mulling spices in it and just very, very low heat, just gently warm it with the spices in there. Um, and that's really good. It's just like mulled wine, but it's it's mead and it's fantastic. Um, I do. I've done that myself. Like I made a Christmas tasting mead where it was a it was a sizer, but um, the apple flavor was really light. And what I did was I put cinnamon, clove, and um, nutmeg in there, and that was fantastic. Mm. 
And that yeah, was uh, nice. Yeah, that was Childerberg year two that I brought that to. So um, I've kind of had some mixed results uh, with apples because one thing I don't know if I mentioned this last time, but on top of the alcohol. So like it once it like I said, once it gets to a certain alcohol point, uh, the yeast are done uh, because it's too acidic. It's too, you know, yeast waste that they're sitting in. But something you also need to watch out for is pH because um, you can have something that's too acidic before you even start brewing. So if you combine apple juice with water and you've put too much apple juice, you need to dilute it back down with more water. Otherwise, the yeast can't handle it. Um, when I did that first sizer that had the spices in it, um, I tried to recreate it like a month later and I was unable to because I, I put yeast in the batch and it just sat there and it sat there and it never started bubbling, never started actually fermenting. So um, I do, I did buy a, well, $15 uh, pH meter from Amazon and it's just like this cheap little Chinese thing, but uh, it does work and it's good to like check and make sure that it isn't too acidic. So, uh, and the number you want for that is it needs to be between 3.7 at the absolute maximum acidity that it can handle and like 4.2. Um, so if you just shoot for 4.0 in acidity, you can gauge whether or not like the mead is going to finish well or even start fermenting. Um, and those that'll go in combination with like your alcohol. So a lot of people don't even use pH meters. They will just know like I can't put and I, I, I can't put beyond a certain amount of honey into a let's say a five gallon batch. Uh, because the potential alcohol is too high, but what they're actually doing is they're um, sort of shadows on the wall measuring the acidity because it, too much honey will also make the water too acidic, um, which is why Makes something sense. like a like a sack, which is extremely alcoholic, starts very low. You you know, like I said, it's fifteen to eighteen pounds for a regular let's call it a 12 to 14 percent mead in a five gallon batch if you do if you want to do a sack mead and push it all the way up to like 18 or 20 percent you actually want to start lower so you might do half of that and do let's say eight pounds of honey for a five gallon batch let it finish fermenting and then add a little bit more honey to it just every basically every few days until it stops um, and that process can make it take very, very long because the closer you get to the end, the longer your wait is going to be in between feeding it. Um, yeah. So, <laughs> what I'm bringing to Childerbrook 4, so should I say what I did uh, in previous years? Yeah, go through it. Okay. Uh, Childerbrook 2 was five meads. And it was uh, traditional. It was a, I did a cranberry mead that I called the Blood of Tyrants because it was red. Um, I did a peach mead. I did the the Christmas spices and the apples. Um, and what was the other one? Oh, and this is the one that I hadn't mentioned yet. So there's what's called a capsicumel. 
which is where you actually brew with capsaicin or some mm-hmm. sort of pepper. Um, so you can use habaneros, you can use jalapenos, you can use re- red chilies. Uh, I like using jalapenos a lot, but um, red chili also works. Um, so the one that I brought to Childerberg too was a, uh, I called it the kick in the dick uh, in re- reference to the Fagcast episode um, where they were threatening to uh, pay people or kick them in the dick to watch listen to the show. Um, That's your choices. Yep. $5 or a kick in the dick. Yep. That was it. So, um, you know, I figured they bring the $5, I'll bring the kick in the dick. And uh, <laughs> it was, it went over pretty well. I also, I had like two, well, that first one I did with hops actually. So I put citra hops in there, which is a very popular like IPA hop um, with the jalapenos. And then the next year, so Childerberg three, I did a few different how like, well, a few different capsicumels. So there was one bottle left of the original hopped jalapeno one, and that was the kick and dick. And then I had a regular capsicumel that was just what I thought was like a solid jalapeno mead. Um, not too spicy, not too sweet, not too anything, just like the right balance of everything. Um, no hops in that one though. And then the third capsicumel that I did was actually a, um, it was a bit lighter of a mead. I, I was brewing them lighter at the time just because I found that lower alcohol content had a better chance of like finishing well, um, based on the the process that I was using at the time, which was lazy man mead. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so leave it and don't care about it kind of thing. Um, but this, so this one I think might've been, I don't know, it was, it was like maybe 11% or something, or it might've been as low as 8%. I'm not, I actually don't remember, but it was red chilies. And I put a, tea bag that I made out of a coffee filter and I filled that tea bag with uh, an Indian spice blend from uh, spicehouse.com so that was fantastic it literally tasted like curry <laughs> nice so good um, but when by the time it was done like soaking in that it was mostly mostly like the cinnamon that you could taste and maybe the like the black anise that's in there but uh it was still really good. It was a more a more complex flavor than I had done previously. Um, so then again, I had a oh, what did I what did I do? I had a lot of jalapeno. I had I th- yeah I had the I can't believe it's not a lager, which I talked about last time. It was hopped mm-hmm. ginger uh, in beer bottles. Um, I had the Vikings blood cherry mead, and this was a, a very good cherry mead that I did last year. Um, yes, indeed. Geez, I had like eight eight different flavors, so I can't really remember. Remember the one with the the pigs from Angry Birds? Oh yeah, uh, pineapple. Yeah, and, um, there it is. Yeah, that was that was pineapple, and I think I did that was one pineapple jalapeno. jalapeno. Too? Yeah, yeah it was pineapple jalapeno. Thought. And so I, I said, you know, pig not included. You got to go get your own. But yeah, I put an Angry Birds pig on there with that had like uh, the police uniform on. Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah, that was fun. Um, there was there was a hydromel that I did where because 
remember how I said a hydromel is more water, less honey. So what I did was I put a picture of uh, bees like at a public swimming pool, like peeing in the pool. <laughs> and it was kind of funny, but like that's like if you think about it, that's like what it is. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> more diluted. Yeah, and then I found there was a little picture of Jaws that I found. It was Jaws with, like, wing floaties. <laughs> and I put him in the back. It was great. <laughs> um, let's see. Yeah, that that's pretty much all I had, because it was, like, three different kinds of capsicum L. There was the traditional from the previous year that I had left over. Um, Hydromel. Can't believe it's not a lager. And then the cherry. Okay, mm. so this year I'm going less different flavors and more of each flavor. So okay. Oh, oh, I'm sorry, Childerberg three. Here was here was another big one. I did a um a piment. So it's brewed with grapes, but guess what kind of grapes they were? Muscadine. Yep. Mm-hmm. And uh, I made a batch out of afterwards after Childerberg. I made a batch out of muscadines that. Jared here got out of his backyard and brought to me at Childerberg. So that oh, was pretty yeah. cool. And they came out really good. But uh, yeah, so last year I did uh, Muscadine Mead, and I called that the Chimera. Um, yeah, yeah, I remember that now. And it's got a very, it's got a very like tart flavor to it, but it, Muscadine grapes just have such a unique flavor, and it came out really great, I thought. Yeah, um, they definitely do. Cool. So... This year, we've got a new Chimera that I actually brewed dry this time instead of semi-sweet. So I didn't add any more honey after bottling. So it is what it is. I'm hoping that the age on it from when I bottled it will uh, have mel- mellowed it out by the time we get to Childerberg in May. Um, but it has, I really just wanted to have like that really unique muscadine flavor without having to like sweeten it and cover it up so yeah. we're gonna yeah, see yeah. how that came out um i also have so here's one that is not listed on the well I'll, I'll save that for last i have another viking's blood um but the new viking's blood is oak aged so it simulates barrel aging with um charred oak chips it's basically when when they make these it literally looks like somebody took a stave from a barrel and chopped it into chunks and then sold it to you in a bag um, so it's okay. literally, I took, I took the barrel and I put it in the, into the batch for like six weeks and aged it that way until I was scared to do it any longer. Cause if you leave, <laughs> if you leave Oak in too long, it can go bad. Um, but, and, and it's just because of the ratio, like the surface area of the, the mead to the surface area of the barrel. So a it, a smaller barrel is kind of the same way where like you don't want to leave it in too long or it gets like real woody and gross after a while that makes sense but a bigger barrel like a full size 30 gallon barrel those you can leave them in there for like 2 years which is what most places actually do with wines and and bourbons and stuff okay um so eventually one day if i have a 30 gallon barrel like you know i'll have made it <laughs> pretty far in my hobby <laughs> but um right now we're just simulating barrel aging by putting <clears throat> oak cubes into the batch but like i said six weeks is the maximum that i would leave it in any mead just because it will get much too woody and tannic um 
so the other one so i i'm using wildflower honey also for pretty much everything this year um except for the chimera i think because i brewed that later uh but the wildflower honey covered three batches and that was uh the viking's blood and the traditional mead that i made uh and then the, so it's a traditional wildflower which makes it interesting because there's flavor nuance that isn't going to be in regular honey and then the big finisher that I is uh, one of my favorites, um, aside from the Vikings blood, is the Bochet. So this is spelled B-O-C-H-E-T. And a Bochet, what makes it special is that you actually put the honey in a pot on the stove and caramelize it before fermenting it. And that creates, well, it does two things. So one, it actually introduces a caramel flavor or like a sort of a burnt bourbon flavor. Mm -hmm. um and the other thing it does is it actually uh denatures some of the sugar that's in the honey uh not all of it but you know basically everything that has been caramelized is now unfermentable so you end up where you can you can ferment the hell out of it but it's always going to have a residual sweetness um, okay so the recipe i used was um a copy of man-made mead on YouTube. Uh, and he, he just calls it the okay Boucher. Um, and it's two thirds of the honey is caramelized. And then he adds another third of normal honey for the flavor. Cause I, and since I used wildflower mead, that's what I wanted to do or wildflower honey. So I caramelized eight pounds and then I added four pounds of normal honey. So it was like 12 pounds or so that I actually put in total. And then um, when it was done, I did add some oak cubes to it, but I think I took them out a little bit too soon because I did I ran them longer on the Viking's blood. So you might catch a note of that oaking process in there, but uh, it's not front row and centered like like with the Viking's blood because I just I didn't want to overdo it, and I, it was the first successful batch that I had oaked. <laughs> so. Um, but the Boucher is, it's really cool. It is literally like bourbon or like almost like a bourbon ice cream kind of thing going on. Cause meat has that thicker texture to it. Um, it's, it's really good. <laughs> so that's what's, that's, what's coming to shoulder break this year. Oh yeah. All good right. Deal, man. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah. I'm growing um, some uh, some weird shit this year that you might be interested in uh, or meads for next year. I, mean, I don't think the timing's going to work out quite right, but maybe two years from now. Um, so that the one the one thing that really jumped out to me as you were going through all this, we're growing uh, pumpkin spice jalapenos this year. I thought those would be really fucking interesting to work with. What? Yeah. Hold um, on, wait, so they taste like pumpkin spice when they're grown? Yeah, yeah. What the hell? Yes, I want to ferment that. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, it probably won't be till like July, August until I start getting those. But once I've got enough to be usable, I'll send you a care package. Hell yeah! I have to look at some of the other weird stuff. I know we, I know we picked out some, uh, some off the wall stuff this year. Like, uh, I mean, it's not. This one's not crazy. It's just something that could potentially also be useful as nasturtiums, um, just because they are, you know, another like pepper flavor source. Um, 
So maybe the, the flowers from those, I don't know how well they'd travel, but I could probably dehydrate them. Um, those are the ones that have come to mind so far. Nice. Aren't nasturtiums like a natural repellent? Um, they are. A I know I've heard Jack Spirico for... talk about them. Hold on, let me look in the book. There you go. I, I just know that I've heard Jack Spirico talk about those, so I'm just like, what are what are they for again? Hold on, looking for the section. It's like divided up in all sorts of sections. Any luck? Not yet, but I did find that there's an index, so that's helping. They're in the pest. They're in the pest control section, so that's a good start. They repel fruit uh, fruit tree borers. That's one so far. They don't actually have their own section. They're just listed under all sorts of different... Like the, the pest control section is divided up into what sort of pest you're wanting to repel rather than what plant does the repelling. So I, I got to jump around. They... Hmm. Yeah, that's just defining one of their actions. Gotcha. One more section to check. They also repel white flies. That's the two that I can confirm from this book. Vine borers and white flies. Yeah, I think it might have been the vine borers that he. Uh, yeah, those suckers are awful. Are those those are bad for tomatoes, right? Um, I haven't had issues with them on tomatoes, but I have issues with them on my squash every year. They just make little mines out of the like hollow stems of the squashes and eat everything from inside. So like squashes kind of have. Um, trying to figure out how to describe it. I mean, it's basically their stem is basically like a, like a hollow pipe, but inside, I mean, that's where all the nutrients trans are transported from the roots to the leaves into the fruit. So the vine borer, being a smart little sucker, gets himself in there and just chows down as the assembly line brings all the food past him. Nice. He's like, I'm not waiting for some fruit to grow up. I'm just sit here and let the food pass right by me and eat it as it goes. Right. Fuckers. Makes sense. Yeah. Assholes. Um, 
Let me see. What else can I say? Oh, um, so if you're curious about trying uh, some meat if you haven't had it before and you want to support Free Ross, you should come to Childerberg because I will be doing that on uh, Sunday at 2 p.m., 3 p.m., and 4 p.m. in rounds. So just, you know, come up, let me know you want to get a tasting. I will uh, give you a cork to bring up when those times happen. And then you hand me the cork and I will hand you a little... Uh, plastic shot glass to uh, try everything with oh nice yep just doing it exactly how the distillery does it across the street from the campsite cool yep very good all right so moving on do you want to tell us about your book i know we mentioned this a long time ago if you were here at the beginning uh we talked about this with uh tori yeah we did we did um, so the book is Carrots Love Tomatoes. This is a book all about companion planting amongst vegetables. Basically, it's like uh, a reference guide for what vegetables are like benefit from being in the presence of others and which ones are harmed by the presence of others. Um, so there's kind of a just a quick introduction and some examples um, from from different studies and stuff. And then it just dives into basically a reference guide going through vegetable by vegetable, asparagus, beans, bush beans, lima beans, pole beans, beets, broccoli, etc., etc. Going through all sorts of different vegetables, be they fruiting, root crops, leafy greens, whatever, um, discussing what sorts of other plants like them. Uh, and it's, you know, equally as important, which ones they don't like to be around. And even... Um, like surprisingly, there are actually a few just like edge cases where it's like, you know, a, a row of some plant may like one basil nearby, but if you've got like three or four, the effect actually reverses and it becomes detrimental. So it's, it's some weird stuff like that. And it's, you know, for better or worse, it's not meant to be like a scientific inquiry into what makes all of these different groupings work well and not uh it's just like this has been my experience working with vegetables and the experience of other growers i've dealt with or like occasionally there'll be some university studies that are referenced as well um but for the most part it's just like grow this with that don't grow that with this i think uh, that's really what it comes down to though i'm not big on you know the scientific process where you're like, I'm going to figure out exactly what chemical and how much and blah, blah, blah. Like, this is all like the human history is just trial and error. Like, hey, this is what's been working for how many thousands of years. And, you know. Yeah, like, for sure. I like a little yeah. bit a little bit of mystique to it, too. A little mystical. Right. Yeah. It's just sort of like, like almost like each even though they are plants, but each thing sort of has a personality and it's easier to think in that sort of holistic way of like, this is the whole plant and how it grows versus, you know, I can chemically figure out what to put in this dirt to make certain things grow and certain things not grow and blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I also like to morphize everything. Um, so I like, you know, just the name companion planning, thinking of as thinking of them as friends and enemies. It just appeals to yep. me as well. Yep. Uh, there is also some discussion in here of um, 
like if you're noticing particular issues with certain vegetables, what could be the cause? Like I just flashed past one that I had highlighted. Back one more. If cabbage or broccoli plants do not head up well, it's a sign that lime, phosphorus, or potash is needed. Boron deficiency may cause the heart of the cabbage to die out. Um, so it, it's weird. Um, some particular vegetables are given a lot more ink than others. Like chili peppers have got three pages, um, but most of them have got you know a quick paragraph discussing what they like. Um, like so, two or three radish seeds in cucumber hills to protect against cucumber beetles. Don't pull the radishes up, but let them grow as long as they will, even blossoming and going to seed. So you're, you know, there's a few things going on there. The cucumber beetles clearly don't like the radishes. Um, probably something about the the smell to them. They're enough that the lazy little bugs are like, hey, what I'm looking for isn't here. But also, you're doing something similar to what many people will do with daikon radish. And growing a large, basically massive nutrient that's just like uh, a fertilizer spike in the ground, but all natural. You just grow this thing and let it rot in place and all of the biological life, macro and microfauna will come through and eat it all up and increase the structure of the soil, the nutrient levels, etc. So you got a few different benefits there from the, the radishes. Nice. Yeah, so it goes through all sorts of different vegetables, like most of anything you could think of. Um, then there's a full section on herbs as well. Um, as an example, basil helps tomatoes to overcome both insects and disease and improves growth and flavor. So basils are good to grow in or around your tomatoes. Um, surprisingly, I'm going to jump backwards a little bit. So the name of the book here is Carrots Love Tomatoes. And much to my dismay, we're going to jump to the carrot section and be a little bit disappointed. One is it page. another one of those one-page deals? Oh, it's so short. Wow. I'm going to jump specifically just to the little section about carrots and tomatoes. Actually, in the carrot section, tomatoes aren't mentioned at all. So we go to the tomato section. Wow. <laughs> I know. I know. This it's is the called... biggest this is the biggest letdown of the whole thing. Where are you at? Okay. Tomatoes are compatible with chives, onion, parsley, marigold, nasturtium, and carrot, and for several years I have planted garlic bulbs between my tomato plants to protect them from red spider mites. That's the whole mention of carrots and tomatoes love for each other. That I would not consider love. It's like a it's like a a, a passing slight attraction. Wow. <laughs> but it does sound nice as a book title. Right. It's very appealing. Yeah. But un unfortunately it seems to be overstated. Mm -hmm. um, but here is a weird one because um, I'm glad I read this before planting this year because I, you know, I I had the book I wanted to make sure I incorporated some good uh, companion planting and usually I'm just kind of disparate in my uh, 
where to look for good companions and bad and such. Um, but this year I had a nice handy guide here. Um, so for the last, I guess it was just this past year, maybe the last two growing seasons, I've grown peppers and tomatoes in five gallon buckets because I've only got uh, five, six, seven garden beds. Uh, just little, I mean, not little, like four by 10 foot, three by 10 foot raised beds um, for all my growing space. And two of those are actually old tractor tires, not uh, like typical wooden raised beds. Um, so I didn't want to have all that space completely filled in by uh, peppers and tomatoes. So I just got five gallon buckets and used them instead. Um, so I was going to take the soil, dump it into the regular garden area just to kind of spread it out and grow different things in all the garden spaces this year um, to make sure I'm not pulling too much nutrient by growing the same thing over and over in the same location. Uh, even though I do do a good job of intercropping, um, planting all sorts of roots and viney guys and pole type things, all sorts of stuff in the same beds. Uh, I just wanted to make sure I switch things up uh, consciously this year. But I hadn't done that yet because I was being uh, a bit lazy as far as the garden was concerned this winter, focusing on other areas. Um, and I come across this area in the book, which says, unlike most other vegetables, tomatoes actually prefer to grow in the same place year after year. And this is all right unless you have a disease problem, in which case plant your tomatoes in a new area, obviously. Since they are heavy feeders, give them ample amounts of compost or decomposed manure, mulch and water and dry weather to maintain soil moisture and save off wilt disease and blossom and rot but never water tomatoes from the top water from below and water deeply last parts are fairly obvious for people who've gardened for a while but it was surprising to me that tomatoes even though they're heavy feeders like to be grown in the same spot over and over that's wild yeah it's would very not strange. have guessed that huh so anyway after the vegetable area um, it gets into all sorts of different herbs, um, included garlic in that area. Uh, garlic and roses actually seem to have a bigger affinity for each other than um, carrots and tomatoes. The author of this book has another book called Roses Love Garlic. Huh. <laughs> um, and then it gets into some different wild plants, um, including some aquatic stuff, which is fairly interesting. Um, and kind of nice, uh, just, uh, to help, you know, if you've heard of some particular plant that, you know, is typically considered a weed that you've got growing all over your yard. And you also find that some particular vegetable likes to grow with that weed. Um, maybe, you know, a good indication that you should go ahead and, plant such things near the weed in the yard if you've got the you know the the ability to do so in yard space i know that's not an option for all of us myself included um, but just something to consider if you have the possibility um as i'm flipping through here's another important one this is something that i learned from paul wheaton actually um if a plot of land grows healthy weeds it will probably grow good vegetable crops too Something that I've heard Paul Wheaton talk about a few times is that anytime he's surveying a property or looking at it for, you know, somebody that's wanting to buy it or whatever, he wants to know what sort of weeds are growing there 
because weeds are going to be a good indication of soil condition because the weed, you know, things we consider weeds are the pioneering plants. They're the things that are going to grow where nothing else will, you know, at the extremes. Um, but they're also really good indications of what could be going on in the soil. If you've got very acidic soil, you're going to see different weeds than if it's very basic soil. If it's been uh, like chemically fertilized for a long time, you're probably going to have, you know, just the particular grasses that can, you know, are, are not the target of those, uh, sorry, I meant to say uh, herbicides. Um, so just something important when you're looking around your yard um, or, you know, like a new, a uh, new place you're looking to acquire. Pay attention to the weeds because they can they can tell you a lot. Um, cool. Yeah, there's a section on some different good uh, you know places to start for growing your own fruits at home, um, like some of the the easier fruits to work with uh, on smaller scale and all sorts of different stuff on nut trees and ornamental plants as well um, that like and don't like each other. Um, then there's an area all about garden techniques, which is kind of like almost verging into permaculture as well um, with some of the techniques. Um, you know, permaculture obviously isn't limited to particular techniques. Almost any technique could be uh, incorporated into permaculture. It just sparked that for me, some of the different techniques that are included. Um, different plants that could be used for soil improvement, whole beautiful area on pest control, um, which is fantastic. You know, the sort of plants that you want to have if you've got issues with rabbits, with raccoons, praying mantis. Um, hey, do they have a section for a house dog? Let's see. Or house pets. Hmm. No section on dogs. Let's see what might be similar. No section on cats either. Darn it. What about gopher? Is your dog like a gopher? Uh, I mean, it might help. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's see what it says. Let's see. Sorry, I'm trying to push the talk with one hand and flip through a soft cover book with the other. Gophers may be repelled by plantings of scylla bulbs, um, sometimes called squills. They are flowering, bulb-like ornamentals that have grass-like leaves and clusters of flowers at the top of long stems. Sounds a lot like a daffodil. Uh, these may be grown among vegetables as well as in flower beds, but be cautious the bulbs should never be eaten. I presume that means that they are poisonous, but it doesn't say so here. There is also another section on poisonous plants, and it goes through... I'm going to jump to that section. I think that's the next section anyway. Yeah, we might need to know if that's poisonous. Because my dog has a really bad digging problem, and I need to find something that will make her just not want to uh, right, right there. But I don't want to kill my dog either. True. Yes, don't kill the dog. Um, so the poisonous plant section is fantastic. It gives the scientific name, common name, and what part of the plant is poisonous, and additionally, like, how poisonous is it? For example, the first entry here, Abris precatorius, the rosary pea, poisonous part of the plant, 
one rosary pea seed causes death. Don't eat a rosary pea seed. Do not use this information in some sort of horrible way. Now you're aware, though. Wow. Yes. So that I've never heard of such a plant, rosary pea, but apparently it's a, it's a killer. Poison hemlock, you know, might be surprising, Classic. but it is poisonous. <laughs> uh, desert marigold, the whole plant is poisonous, which is surprising because I believe uh, like normal marigolds are edible. Don't quote me on that. Don't eat marigolds without consulting with a physician or whatever you're supposed to do. <laughs> Belladonna lilies have poisonous bulbs, which is uh, like horribly confusing because daylilies have edible bulbs. They're similarly related-ish. Let's see what else. Osage orange, the milky sap, is poisonous, which is like an additional deterrent if you're using Osage orange as a like a living fence system because it's nice and prickly. Uh, also, the the sap, if somebody tries to cut through it, still a deterrent because poison. Hmm. We didn't get much in the way of a deterrent for your dog. Let me jump back to pest control. Let's see what else might be similar. Let's try raccoons. Mm. No. Raccoons have traditionally been deterred from eating corn by planting pumpkins around them because the wide leaves and tangling vines are enough of a deterrent that a raccoon looks elsewhere for food. That's probably not going to be helpful. Uh, they also use black or red pepper on the corn silks um as a deterrent but we've already gone over that. that doesn't work for your dog the other suggestion is well to be fair i haven't seen her dig but i have seen her just lick the dirt where i sprayed the capsaicin spray <laughs> and i'm like what are you okay and then she walks around licking her lips because it burns <laughs> yeah so she's, i yeah. don't know if that's helping or not but i did not see her dig so i don't know mm, so it might be working maybe we'll uh we'll keep testing i'm just gonna supervise yes time will tell don't let her od on the capsaicin is that a thing i don't know she'll probably get indigestion from it probably just like humans oh god can you imagine if you gave a dog chipotle <laughs> i don't want to no It'd be awful. Oh my gosh. While we're completely off topic here, um, <laughs> my wife is a user of the TikTok. Don't hold it against me. I'm, I'm not in control of my wife. Um, she, <laughs> she found this video the other day of this cat that was using the litter box. And he's just sitting there, you know, clearly you know what's probably about to happen because it's a cat in the litter box. He's kind of got the straining face going on. 
Uh, and all of a sudden, it's just like the most comical set of farts that you have ever heard. Like something you'd expect from like a some over the top like slapstick comedy movie where they're like obviously faking somebody in the bathroom, but it's just coming right out of this poor cat's butt. Oh my god. <laughs> the poor thing. Yeah. Uh, uh, but then, so the book ends with uh, a nice set of garden plans. So, like, just some different inspiration for going out and planting your own gardens and getting the thing done. Um, it is super handy as a reference book. Um, it wasn't really like a ton of help to have read it cover to cover in my opinion after having done so um but it sounds had, a lot like a, a peterson field guide like you just keep it around for when you need it yeah i think that would be the best use for it um and to supplement the from seed to spoon mobile app also is really good for suggesting friends and enemies of plants that you're wanting to plant just so you keep production up and keep you know, if you're using garden space, you want it to be good and productive and doing well and not everything choking each other out. Nice. Yep. Treat it like a like a mushroom guide. Use it when you're going to go out and plant some stuff. Right. Keep it handy, but it's not necessary to read cover to cover. Nice. Yeah, I'm, I'm probably going to buy that book just to, like, look into the herbs and stuff because that's something that I've been wanting to do is grow my own herbs to brew with oh yeah for sure um just try out some more like traditional recipes because one thing that i heard was that a lot of spices that i would normally think of as like steak spices you know rosemary thyme like um a lot of those like mediterranean spices are actually uh his what archaeologically found in mead like it's those the origins in like Greece and stuff, they actually used that a lot. Cool. Yeah. So. All right. Do we have any anything else today? I don't think so at the moment. Yeah. Uh, we're tossing around some ideas for additional shows that we're gonna do. Um, gotta see how those are going to work out and some uh, some additional segments that we're going to add in as well and stuff. But it's all still in the planning phase, so keep your ears peeled. Nice. Yeah, I think uh, what we'll do is when we decide that we're doing that, we'll change up the uh, season thing. So uh, for anybody who might find it a little annoying uh, what our feed looks like, um, we're just going to consolidate it into numbered episodes when we change seasons. Um, and I think this new segment thing that we're doing, uh, which I won't spoil here now, but, um, when that happens, I think that's when I'll just call it season two and then we'll just number them directly instead of having separated interview and episode numbers. Sounds good. Cool. Well, uh, Hope you all enjoyed it. Um, I definitely enjoy talking about mead and and all the things that I get to bring to Childerberg and and I enjoy talking about or listening to plants and and how that works. Um, check out our our show notes and the episode description for the 
butcher box and fold card referral links and uh yeah, yeah. we'll see you at shilderberg and dan if you're listening i got quail diversity another way but i still want to swap quails with you <laughs> all right that just sounds weird out of context <laughs> i don't even know what that means we're, we're gonna swap quail eggs okay okay that that's better no i i was thinking the quail diversity thing. it was just a weird thing to say like <laughs> hey i've got I got quail diversity a different way. Don't worry about it. Like what? <laughs> I got eggs from a, a buddy here local. Oh, okay. <laughs> All right. <laughs> it's as straightforward as it sounds. You, you put too much thought into it. No, I know. I definitely do. <laughs> All right. We're getting uh, out of here now. Peace and love. All right. Cheers. Cheers.